Thank you for connecting to the Bethany Chapel Sermon Link. Our prayer is that you will find the following sermon helpful and inspiring for your spiritual journey. If you are a visitor to this resource, or if you've not attended our church, we would love to meet you in person. Our vision at Bethany Chapel is opening doors to God's truth and love. God bless you as you listen. We're continuing our series today on Bethany Values, a lasting foundation. Today we're talking about uh, outward focus, as Barry actually just mentioned. Auguste Rodin was a famous French Impressionist. You probably don't know who he is, but you probably recognize one of his works. It's a famous sculpture uh, called The Thinker. And when you look at The Thinker, uh, we, we kind of see this guy, you know, he's, he's kneeling down. He looks like a very serious guy. Uh, somehow he lost his clothes the night before. Uh, not sure how that happened, but uh, that's an era where somehow every time you made a statue, they were lacking clothes. So you've got this guy sitting on a stool uh, with no clothes on, but a serious guy with no clothes on, pensively contemplating life's great questions. Why do we exist? This is what we imagine he's thinking. Why do we exist? What is the meaning of life? Why are the best tasting foods all bad for me? You know, why can't the Minnesota Vikings ever win a Super Bowl? Why is it easier to raise boys than girls? Something many of us wonder. Why do women visit the ladies' room in pairs? All these kinds of things going through his mind. He's thinking about these very serious issues, and actually we have a picture of him right here. This is the thinker. That's what you're used to seeing, and that is a little larger statue than the original. But actually, we don't have to wonder what he was thinking about in the original pose. This is the thinker as you have often seen him. That was not the original thinker and not how he was originally portrayed. In 1880, Rodin was commissioned to create a pair of bronze doors that would be sort of, I believe, the outside of a museum that was going to be built. And evidently, uh, he worked, I think, for 37 years on this. The museum itself actually was never built, but the cast or the mold for the doors uh, was built, was completed. And his inspiration for the thinker came from Dante and his divine comedy, which had this depiction of hell. And a smaller version of the thinker sits near the top of Rodin's The Gates of Hell. This was not started as an independent dude sitting on a stool who lost his clothes the night before. This was a person above the gates of hell looking into eternity. And here you see him in his original pose. You see him circled by those, uh, you see those two doors there on the left, and then uh, a closer up, you see him there. And he is pondering Dante's inferno and Dante's written perception or depiction of hell. And in that scene, which is pretty gruesome, 200 human figures, no gravity, no rules or morals, every imaginable pose, 
in a, a depiction of humanity separated from God, separated from his grace, and separated from all that is good. And that's what the thinker is actually contemplating. That's what he's thinking about. Now, nobody really wants to do that today, and I get that. Even in Christianity, there are parts of my Bible that I would just as soon tear some pages out and never talk about, never preach on, and this isn't a sermon on hell. And when you see the Bible's depictions of hell, I hope they are metaphorical. I believe hell is real, but I hope the depictions are metaphorical for a place of separation from God, but it's not exactly as we often imagine it. But it's easy to block out of our minds the things we really don't want to care about, even in our faith. It's easy to pick and choose the warm and fuzzy parts of our faith. And sometimes it's just convenient. Sometimes we're actually biased against God's word and God's wishes. And today we're going to look at our second value, outward focus. We believe that reaching beyond ourselves reflects the value of people as well as God's desire to be in a relationship with every person everywhere. Now that really doesn't sound that intimidating or that difficult, does it? But the reality is, if you're in the Western world today, if you're in, if you're in Europe, if you're in Canada, reaching people is hard, and there are a lot of reasons in the culture that we don't want to do it, because trying to touch the lives of other people with your belief system is really risky in the Western world today. The reality is, pluralism abounds, and, and it's now considered arrogant to try to, if I'm going to use the word convert, because that's sort of the dirty word in the culture today, it is arrogant to try to convert anyone to anything today, because we live in a pluralistic culture which has adopted the view that diversity is ideal, and not just diversity of race and creed and so on, but within that diversity, we cherish the ideal that we have different ways of thinking, there are different religions, all truth is relative, all roads lead to heaven, you're not going to be right, this is no more right than Buddhism or Hinduism or any other religion, that's the view today. So when you try to reach somebody with the gospel and you're telling them Jesus is the way and the truth and the life, you're saying you're right, they're wrong, your religion is superior, and the reality is we'd all like the warm and fuzzy parts of the Bible, but we really don't want to be involved in this process a lot. It's easy to be a reluctant missionary in the world today, a very reluctant sort of witnesser of what we believe about Jesus. And we can believe these things, we can be willing to die for Jesus, but we really don't wanna share what we believe with our friends and neighbors and relatives because it's never been more unpopular. So, I could get to this passage, of, or should say this value, one of our six core values, not everything we believe, not everything we value, but six core values. And I could preach a sermon on the Great Commission. Matthew 28, 18 through 20. Go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. We can pull a couple of points out of that. We can get you to say amen. We can all go home. I'm not sure that really addresses why this doesn't happen, because we all know that passage. I don't have my Bible memorized, but I had that one memorized. I didn't memorize it this week to impress you. 
I just knew it because we all know it. We all know what that says. But that doesn't change us. So I thought we would look at history's most famous and reluctant missionary because that's our issue. The attitudes that are within us that cause us to not want to do something that we all believe. And that would be Jonah. Jonah. So we're going to look at Jonah. I'm going to ask you to turn to page uh, 657. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one in front of you. You just flip over to page 657 uh, in the Old Testament there. We've got this very little prophet, one of the minor prophets, four chapters, just a short story. If you, you, this is a really easy book to read in really just a few moments. You get the whole, uh, the whole picture then. I'm going to read for you the first chapter, but we're going to talk through the whole book. Jonah chapter 1, page 657, and I'm going to read again the first chapter here. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh. Now, Nineveh is the capital of Assyria, so it's not, it's not a Jewish city, it's not a Hebrew city, it's the capital of a neighboring country. Arise, go to Nineveh, the great city, and cry against it, for their wickedness has come up before me. But Jonah rose up to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. So he went down to Joppa, found a ship which was going to Tarshish, paid the fare, and went down into it uh, to uh, go with them to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. The Lord hurled a great wind on the sea, and there was a great storm on the sea, so that the ship was about to break up. So this is the Mediterranean Sea. Then the sailors became afraid, and every man cried to his God, and they threw the cargo which was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone below into the hold of the ship, lain down, and fallen sound asleep. So the captain approached him and said, How is it that you're sleeping? Get up, call on your God. Perhaps your God will be concerned about us so that we will not perish. And each man said to his mate, Come, let us cast lots, so we may learn on whose account this calamity has struck us. So they cast lots, and, well, God uh, sort of cooperated with their superstitions. The lot fell on Jonah. Then they said to him, Tell us now, on whose account has this calamity struck us? What is your occupation? Where do you come from? What is your country? From what people are you? Well, he said to them, I'm a preacher. No. I'm a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord God of heaven who made the sea and the dry land. Then the men became extremely frightened. So they heard of Israel's God. They said to him, how could you do this? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. So they said to him, what should we do to you that the sea may become calm for us? For the sea was becoming increasingly stormy. And he said to them, pick me up and throw me into the sea. Then the sea will become calm for you. For I know that on account of me this great storm has come upon you. However, the men rowed desperately to return to land, but they couldn't, for the sea was becoming even stormier against them. Then they called on the Lord and said, We earnestly pray, O Lord, do not let us perish on account of this man's life, and do not put innocent blood on us, for you, O Lord, have done as you have pleased. In other words, they didn't want to throw him in the sea. They knew they'd be, they have a perception of sort of murder or a capital offense, so they didn't want to be guilty of what was called blood guilt in the Old Testament. But that didn't work, so they picked up Jonah, threw him into the sea, and the sea stopped its raging, which made quite an impression on them. So then the men feared the Lord greatly. They offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow Jonah, and Jonah was in the stomach of the fish three days and three nights. 
Now, we're going to stop there, but we're going to talk through the rest of the story. First, God loves all peoples and has always wanted a relationship with them. Now, if you, if you read through this story, this is not taught here propositionally, like it's not stated. It's not taught here explicitly, not stated, but it is the point of the book. In other words, the writer of Jonah, which we believe was Jonah, wrote this book. You would, he assumed you would understand the point by the whole context of the story and what God is commanding him to do. It's a fascinating book. It is massively controversial due to the supernatural element that we see here with this fish swallowing Jonah and him living. So I realize there's a lot of skepticism about this book, even among church people, and we're going to talk about that because there's some fascinating history around this. Jonah is most likely not just in this book. So people who don't believe this book would say, well, this is sort of a legend meant to make a point. It's sort of a mythological story to make a point. But we actually have uh, quotes about Jonah in other passages in the Old Testament. We believe it's the same guy. So if it is, Jonah is the Jonah of 2 Kings 14.25, where he is a prophet to the northern tribes of Israel. He is the son of Amittai, and he's from Gath-Hefer. He was a prophet in the 8th century B.C., so the 700s B.C. He lived during a time, now this is a big deal, so hear what I'm saying here. He lived during a time in which Israel, even though they had kings that really weren't following God, Israel, the ten northern tribes, had reestablished security at their northern border. So their armies had been successful. They sort of defended their land on the northern border, especially northeast, as related to a growing regional power called Assyria. It was also a time when the Assyrian Empire, as I just mentioned, is threatening the whole region. So Assyria, ancient Assyria, is becoming very strong. Israel's sort of in a little bit of a rebirth, and they're pretty strong on the northern border. And so tensions are rising in the northeast, and they're concerned about their national security. Assyria is the new bully on the block. They're the greatest threat to Jonah's country, Israel. Now also, just remember the whole context of the Old Testament. I think we miss this, and I'm glad the book of Jonah is here. And it's also why Matthew mentions women who are in the lineage of Christ. Remember that? He mentions, you know what, uh, Tamar and Ruth and Bathsheba and Rahab, all Gentile women who are actually in the line of Christ. And the reason he does that, and the reason the story is here, is when you look at the Old Testament, it doesn't seem like there's a lot of missions going on. It it doesn't seem like there's a lot of love for the people around Israel. And so the whole Old Testament is is sort of misleading in that sense. There's a lot of international hostility. So let's go back and talk about what the Old Testament is meant to show us and what was supposed to happen and then what did happen. In Genesis chapter 12, early in the Bible, you've got God saying to Abraham, he's going to make of him a great nation that will bless the world. We call that the Abrahamic covenant. So God promises a nation that would bless the world. In Genesis, you've got a man becoming a clan that becomes a nation. The opening of the book of Exodus, the second book in the Old Testament, Israel is a nation, probably a couple of million people as they come out of slavery in Egypt. He gave her a land, we call it the promised land or Israel, and he gave them his divine assistance to defend it. So God creates this covenant with Israel, which is the book of Exodus. It's basically a treaty. 
The book of Deuteronomy is a repeat of that treaty. In those books, God says, if you, bless, if you, if you obey me, I will bless you and I will honor you. And you'll be, uh, you, you know, your, your herds will expand. You'll have lots of kids. You, your armies will be able to defend this nation, this piece of land I'm putting you on between three major continents and all the major trade routes. So God was going to supernaturally bless Israel as she obeyed him. But she didn't obey him in the Old Testament. She didn't stay committed to the true God. And God had warned in that covenant, in that treaty, that he would allow her enemies to invade her and punish her to get her to a point of repentance. And so in the Old Testament, there was rarely peace. Israel never functioned for very long as a light to the Gentiles. That was to be her purpose. She was to be a light about God's truth to the world around her, a light to the Gentiles. But because there were always these skirmishes at the borders and she often didn't obey God and God allowed her to be invaded, her neighbors were always seen as her enemies. There was a short period of time where we see it working under the reigns of maybe David and Solomon. We see King Solomon in his glory and people were coming from around the world to, to learn about the true God. But that was a small part of Israel's history. Her neighbors were often seen as her enemies. They were not seen as the object of God's love they were not seen as people to be reached and changed and transformed by God. They were just seen as enemies. That's the historical backdrop of this great Old Testament story. Jonah doesn't like the Ninevites. He's got a reason not to like the Ninevites. They're ready to potentially invade his country. But God loves all people. God loves the Ninevites. He had a special place for Israel, but he loves the Assyrians. He created them. They're made in his image. They're people just like the Israelites are. They're made in his image. So now we open with the point that really is chapter one. Jonah gets orders from God, goes AWOL, for those of you who don't have any military training, absent without leave, suffers setback at sea. So this is the Sunday school story of Jonah. This is what you learned when you were six years old and you had to you know, draw in the whale and everything and you had your crayons, you took it to mom and dad or grandpa and grandma. This is the first chapter of Jonah. It's the biggest part of the story. God orders Jonah to go to the capital city of Assyria, the primary regional threat to their independence. It's called Nineveh. God's motive is to give them a chance. It's a pagan city. They're not following the true God. There's all kinds of things going on there that God is not pleased with. His judgment was going to come on that city. His motive is to give the Assyrians a chance to repent in order to avoid judgment. God doesn't want to judge them. So he's saying to Jonah, who is a preacher, he's saying, I've got this great missionary opportunity for you. You have been called to go to Nineveh. It's going to be, I don't know, maybe a, you know, a short gig because I'm going to judge them in 40 days. So it's a short gig, but this is the thing. It's a short-term missions trip. Go to your church board, see if you can get some support there. And, you know, you're going, to, you're going to go on a missions trip to Nineveh. Jonah wanted nothing to do with it. And instead of going northeast to Assyria, he went straight west to the Mediterranean Sea. He wasn't far from Joppa. And he got in a ship which was headed to Tarshish. 
Now, we actually aren't sure where ancient Tarshish was. It's mentioned in the scriptures, I believe in other places as well. We know it's Western Mediterranean. Some suspect it was Spain. Some think an island on the way to Spain. It's mentioned elsewhere in scripture as a mining source, like for silver and other metals. I think tin, silver, other things as well. So some place in the Southern Mediterranean where, where there's a lot of mining probably was ancient Tarshish. He gets on this boat. He goes down in the belly of the ship. He's trying to figure out how he can sleep and forget he's running from God, so he takes some NyQuil, because that will put you to sleep. I've done it. And he goes down in the belly of the ship, and he takes a nap. Well, God really doesn't like being told no. It's a thing about God. So God says, well, I'm going to use some natural means to get Jonah's attention. So a storm rises violently. And sailors are all worried about their lives because ships crash in that part of the world back then all the time. Extra weight that was on the boat was thrown overboard to keep the ship afloat. Um, an ecumenical prayer meeting broke out. And they're literally waking up Jonah to say, okay, everybody's, everybody's praying to their God. On this day, we're all ecumenical. We're not sure who's got the right God, but we're all praying just to make sure we're covered. So get up and pray to your God. We're praying to our gods. They're all praying to their gods. It was pretty interesting. And then when that didn't work, they decided to play the game of who made their God mad. And we don't know what that looked like, but you know, our closest version of that would be they drew straws. And Jonah drew the short straw and he confessed his story to them, that he was Jewish or a Hebrew, and that he believed in the true God, maker of heaven and earth. And they had heard of that God. And he advised that the only way to save themselves in light of God's persistence in getting everyone's attention, and they were suffering on behalf of his sin, said the only way you're going to save yourselves is to throw me overboard. They wanted nothing to do with that. They were all committed to other gods, but they all knew there would be some sort of guilt that they would take upon themselves and their religions. You know, there aren't a lot of religions where you can murder people. They all recognize we will be guilty of what's called in the Old Testament blood guilt. We'll be guilty of sort of the equivalent of some sort of manslaughter, second degree murder of some sort if we throw you overboard on purpose to save ourselves. They wanted nothing to do with it. But nothing worked. And they knew they were all going to die. So they picked up Jonah, and they threw him into the sea. And Jonah hit the water, no doubt, expecting death. But before death came, everybody's worst water fear came true. Soundtrack from Jaws? No, just kidding. All right. Everybody's worst fear came true. Jonah is swallowed by something. And the Bible says he is held there for three days and three nights. As soon as that happened, the sea calmed, and the sailors recognized, I don't know that they saw Jonah being swallowed or not, but they knew they threw him in the sea, and the sea immediately calmed, and they recognized that God had intervened. Jonah's God had intervened, and so they took several steps towards Jonah's God right after this happened. The Bible says that they feared God. They started sacrificing to him. 
and they made vows. It doesn't mean they became Old Testament believers. We don't know how far that went, what they really understood about salvation, but they took some steps towards Israel's God at a minimum. Now, this moment in the story is why the book is rejected as non-historical. It's the primary reason, obviously. But the book is written as history. Now, again, I get it. I'm up here every week defending God and defending a conservative view of the scriptures. And uh, you might be a few of you that roll in your eyes and thinking, oh boy, this guy's kind of, you know, he, he sure is the right wing of Christianity. I get it. I get it. I get it. I'll, I'll be dead soon. It'll be okay. The book is written as history, okay? The book is written as history. There was a man named Jonah, the son of Amittai. We know of him from other places. The book is written as history. And again, I always tell you, I get really concerned about throwing Old Testament stories out that Jesus references as history also. And Jesus talks about Jonah and talks about Jonah's experience in the belly of a fish, so it's problematic when we just want to throw this stuff out. Now, Jesus could be referencing, I suppose, a myth or a legend and just saying, well, we've got this myth that makes the same point, and Jesus is just referencing the myth like we would reference a fairy tale to our kids. I mean, I suppose Jesus could be doing it. I don't believe he is doing it. He seems to speak of it as history. Most conservative scholars actually accept this as history. And here's the beauty of this. Conservative scholars have done enough research to find other similar examples of this where people have had this happen and have survived. Now, this is going to be fun. One of my commentaries that I was reading about this actually references what's called the Princeton Theological Review. So Princeton, as in Princeton uh, University in the U.S., like Princeton, Yale, Harvard, like one of the great Ivy League schools, Princeton, Yale, and Harvard all had great seminaries historically. They, several of them were started actually to train pastors before they sort of went off the deep end and adopted all sorts of anti-biblical theology. They were really good schools at one point. So there's what was called the, in history the Princeton Theological Review. So Princeton would put out a monthly, I believe, monthly or quarterly review of certain Bible topics. And scholars would write about certain topics. In the Princeton Theological Review, October 1927. All right? Does anybody remember that? That was a joke. All right. So 1927, Princeton Theological Review, October. I actually Googled it and got the PDF and started reading the scholarly input about this stuff happening in modernity. Now, most of these kinds of stories come out of whaling situations, like when they would put out the boat, you know, just like, uh, what's the famous, uh, Moby Dick, there you go, Moby Dick, kind of grumpy dude, had a little issue with a white whale. All right, that was quite a summary of Moby Dick, eh? Grumpy dude with an issue with a white whale. Anyway. So in 1927, we're not removed from this kind of whaling. I mean, today, whaling, if it happens, is not happening the way it did back then. Uh, but back then, you'd have a whaling ship. It would have these other smaller boats that would be lowered over the side. You'd have guys out on the end of those with harpoons. They, uh, forgive me, okay? I know this, I, not everyone likes seeing things die in sermons. I, I just have to tell you this, okay? The harpoonist hits the whale. It's got a rope on the harpoon. They pull the whale to the boats. The whales eventually bleed out, and then they're cut up for blubber, which is... Um, obviously melted and it was used uh, to light homes and so on back throughout history. Whaling incidents um, 
or where these kinds of things happened. And what's interesting is, uh, late 1800s, you have a lot of whaling ships, and just, just so you know, whales don't like whaling. Sometimes, just like in Moby Dick, they actually fight back. I'm not making this up. A whale knows it's got a big mouth. A sperm whale knows it's got a massive mouth. Normally used to gulp, you know, massive, I believe sperm whales do this, massive amounts of, you know, small little herring or things like that, and then they go down their gullet and so on. So I've got a couple of stories from the Princeton Theological Review, October 1927. You could look it up right now on your phone. I'd appreciate it if you didn't, but you could. So one of these stories, sperm whale, I believe has been harpooned, and he goes and he goes after the small boat that's out there with the harpoonist and a couple of dudes rowing, and he crushes the small boat, probably lunges on top of it or hits it with its tail, crushes it. He took a sailor down in his mouth, came back up, spit him out. All right, so that just means the whale is very consciously capable of knowing who's attacking him, of grabbing that person, knowing it's not a minnow, taking him down, spitting him back out. All right, that's a story. That's kind of cool, but that's not the good one. Here's the good one. And these were well-researched, documented events. A sperm whale swallowed a whaler. The sperm whale was then killed. It was harvested for its blubber. It's being cut up all day and into the night they have completely, basically, you know, gutted the whale and used its flesh to melt down to make oil. And now you're into the evening, and the sailors thought, let's see what it had to eat. I've caught fish and opened up their stomachs, just like those of you who fish have. See, okay, let's see what these guys are eating. When they got the stomach out, they saw movement in it. They opened the stomach. The whaler was alive. And this is after many, 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 many hours. He's alive. Took a little bit to recover. But he was fine in a few weeks. This has happened in history. God could do it without those illustrations, but this stuff has actually happened, separate from Jonah. So the miracle here is not that God made a special fish, even though he could have, he controlled. I mean, I just told you a couple weeks ago about this illustration from an astrophysicist. If the universe is one trillionth of 1% different in its gravitational pull, we'd have the big collapse instead of the big bang, and if it was the other direction, it'd go, we'd, we'd just all be dead. You know, God controls the universe. He is the missing atom. He controls the universe. Physicists can't explain the universe, and they try hard because most of them are atheists. But the reality is, the miracle isn't that God made a special fish. It probably was a sperm whale. And the miracle isn't that God preserved Jonah in it. You can live in that situation. We found a dude who did. Not three days, but probably most of one day. Good part of a day. That's not the miracle. The miracle is God's control over his creation and his impeccable timing with that specific whale. So if you're ever in the ocean eaten by a whale, I would conclude God did it, but, and that's another, no. All right, so inside of the fish, or whale, we assume, 
Jonah became a very eloquent prayer warrior. Chapter 2 is like one of the best written prayers ever. It's good stuff. He had some time to think about his choices. And after 72 hours, um, little antacid going on in the whale's belly, and Jonah was expelled. Some speculate, and this is probably good speculation, he would have looked pretty bleached by the gastric juices seen from The Walking Dead. No, all right, pretty bleached by the gastric juices, and he would have gone to Nineveh looking like that with his story of what happened to him. Third point, Jonah responds to God's second call. He's a little more willing now. Leads a great revival and resents God for having compassion on Israel's enemies. This is a fascinating story. Jonah's sort of the first great racist. Well, he's not the first one, but we've got a book about it. Jonah was more compliant now. He makes the journey northeast to an area in modern Iraq, across the river from modern Mosul. Uh, this would be where Nineveh was, ancient Nineveh. The last verse of the book references at least 120,000 people there. Some say with the surrounding areas it could have been much larger. It, and uh, Jonah speaks in Jonah chapter 3, I believe, of three days. Uh, scholars debate whether that's three days of preaching or whether it took three days to walk the city, which would indicate how large it was. He preached of impending judgment. God was going to judge the city in 40 days. News reached the king. The king basically put out a decree, um, we're all in some trouble here. We got this sort of bleached dude who's got this story, and we probably should repent. And so the whole city basically sackcloth and ashes. The whole city repented. And then you've got this really interesting theological debate um, out of one of the verses there in uh, chapter 3 or 4 where it said, God changed his mind. Another word is God relented. If you look at the King James, it says God repented. Now, we think of repentance as turning from sin, changing your mind about sin, but the word means to change your mind. And so there's a statement that God changed his mind about what he was going to do to Nineveh. Judgment was withheld. Jonah was an international Hebrew rock star as an evangelist. I mean, think about this. He has just gone to a city of 120,000 at a minimum on a short-term missions trip and had a, an international revival. He's on the cover of the Ninevite Times. He's on Snapchat, Twitter, which is now X, TikTok, all of them. I mean, he's just being, everybody knows who he is, preaching today, asked for an interview. Somebody's talking to Jonah about movie rights. This was the ideal as a preacher, and he is mad. He's mad. Do you know why he's mad? Because he wanted none of this. He didn't want to go there. He had no heart for the outsider. He did not want them to find God. Think about that. In fact, here's the verse. This is incredibly transparent. Jonah chapter 4, verse 2. He prayed to the Lord and said, Please, Lord, was not this what I said while I was still in my own country? Therefore, in order to forestall this, I fled to Tarshish. This is why I ran in the first place, God, because I knew you're a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger, abundant in loving kindness, and one who relents or changes your mind concerning calamity. In other words, I knew you were going to do this. What is wrong with you, God? These are your enemies. I'm one of your own. Why on earth do you care about others? 
What an honest moment. I mean, what an honest moment. A rare, honest moment like that. Jonah hated the Assyrians. He was happy to preach to Jewish people. He's kind of being racist here. I mean, that's just what it was. So he found a place on a nearby field outside the city to sit and wait for judgment. Get it. Jonah sits outside the city because he's hoping God's going to still wipe him out. Waits for the 40 days to happen, and he's thinking God still might wipe him out. Judgment never came. The only judgment, you see it in chapter 4, is God trying to instill the same compassion in Jonah that God felt for the Ninevites. A couple of things as we close. First, we cannot escape the sober reality and the awesome privilege of being a light in a lost world. The thinker, for if you research it, you'll always know the thinker was originally not the thinker. It was a guy looking into eternity and pondering hell. That's what the thinker was about. You can't remove it from what it was intended to be. And we cannot be removed from thinking about these very serious issues and caring about the world around us. We're not supposed to be able to be removed from that. It's who we are and it's what we're supposed to do. Now I've shared this story with you a couple of times, so if you've been around here for a few years, you've heard it. But I just can't think of a better story, a true illustration about our world and how Christianity is to view evangelism. In the People's Republic of China, largest nation in the world, over a billion people, you have what's called the three-self church. It's the state-approved church. Leith Anderson, who's a pastor in Minnesota before he retired, uh, went to um, Beijing. They went to one of the services in one of the three-self churches. Now, we all know there's great persecution of Christians in China. It was an old building built around the turn of the century. He said they had a translator there. Hymns were sung. Some of them were sung to Western tunes. They knew the hymns, they read the Bible, they had prayers, there was a sermon, a Bible teaching, and Leith Anderson is thinking from America, he's thinking, what is going on here? I mean, they're not being persecuted, this is, like, this is almost like an American church. They're not allowed to evangelize. That's the deal with the state. You can do your own thing as long as your thing doesn't include converting or trying to preach to somebody else, persuade somebody else. There are about 50 million Christians in the People's Republic of China who have chosen not to be part of that church. They meet in houses because they're convinced you can't be a Christian unless you evangelize. They say the two go together. If you don't evangelize, you're not a Christian. That's what they say. So they won't be part of the state church. And because of that, they are persecuted. For real. And all they would have to do is say, okay, we won't try to convert anybody, and then go to a church right out in the open. Communist Party's fine with it. That's the difference between the persecuted church and the non-persecuted church in China. The persecuted church recognizes their job is to convert people to follow Jesus. We can't escape that. That's who we are. That's what we're meant to be. It doesn't matter what the culture says or how unpopular this becomes. Second, Beware of the attitudes and perspectives in the church that impact the effectiveness of our impact. Jonah lacked compassion. Jonah was a racist. Jonah had no problem with a narrow, holy huddle. 
you know, there's actually some studies being done on, you know, the Titanic that, you know, went down in, I forget which year it was, but Titanic went down. There's actually studies done on who survived the, Titan the Titanic based on social class and standing. Because if you remember, if you ever watched the movie Titanic, which it's kind of hard to watch, um, not just because Leonardo DiCaprio is the leading man, but it's hard to watch. He's good in some stuff. He is. He's got some talent, just not there. Anyway, so, so in the Titanic, you know, there's these people are kind of in the ship and in these different levels based on their social standing class. And so the poor were in the bottom of the ship. And, and I'm understanding when the Titanic went down, some of the poor and the lower classes weren't allowed to sort of get up to the higher decks where these boats were or something like that. So there's, there's controversy about it. I don't know what to believe, but you know, we're, everybody should be, have an opportunity to be rescued is the point. What about the church today? What, what, what attitudes could we have? Let's just worry about those of us in the camp because we got our hands full right there, don't we? You know, the world's getting scary. Let's just get in our little holy huddle and get warm and keep warm. Church is for us. It's not for people. If they want to convert on our terms and come in here, they're welcome, but let's not change anything in the church in order to do that. The church is for us and for our kids. And Man, evangelism is hard. Evangelism, isn't that kind of God's problem? Doesn't God save people? We don't save people. It's kind of God's problem. So people need to come to faith on our terms. You know, we, we can have attitudes too that affect whether people can come to faith, just like Jonah. And third, be a part of the spreading of the greatest story ever told. Now, I'm out of time, and I was five minutes ago, so wrap this up quickly. One of the things we do here, every dollar that's given to Bethany Chapel, 15% of that, 15 cents, goes to missions. Why? Because we're committed to that. The best thing you could do as an individual, besides that, is friendships. If I asked you, who do you spend time with, day after day after day, week after week after week, if they all look and sound like me, well, hopefully they don't all look like me, that'd be a scary group of friends, but... If they all sound like me and they all believe what I believe, then I would say you've got some of the wrong friends because the way people are converted to Christianity is as they rub shoulders with people of faith and they recognize, I guess you're not crazy after all. But if once people come to faith, and this is sociologically what happens when people come to faith, it doesn't take them long to ditch everybody in their life that doesn't know Jesus. And they replace all the people they used to know and love and be friends with with people like me and you. And that cuts off the whole evangelistic process. Man, we've got to still be connected to people. People who are outside of faith. It's the best thing you can do. Is to have a lot of people in your life who don't believe what you believe. I want to just close with little good news about the domino effect. Richard Stearns, president of World Vision, calls it the domino theory of spiritual impact. Imagine a long line of dominoes. When one falls, it starts a chain reaction that can cause dozens or hundreds more dominoes to fall. Jesus set up 12 dominoes, his disciples. Let's just call it 11. Mentored them, empowered them with the Holy Spirit, sent them off to go and do likewise. Now there are over 2 billion followers of Christ in the world. That's a lot of dominoes. He provides the following story about the spiritual impact that one person can have. In the 1880s, Robert Wilder, he was a missionary kid from India. 
He was preparing to return to the mission field. During college, he signed a pledge along with friends to become a missionary. But because he was so physically frail, he never fulfilled that pledge. Instead, he encouraged others to take up the task. One domino fell. During a preaching tour that took Robert through Chicago, he spoke to an audience that included Samuel Moffat. Samuel also signed Robert's pledge, and within two years, he landed in Korea, influenced by Robert to be a missionary. Another domino fell. A few years later, Samuel Moffat shared the gospel with a man who had become disillusioned with his Taoist practice. Kiel Sun Chu trusted Christ, and quickly another domino fell. In 1907, Seal Sun Chu, or Kiel, was one of the leaders of the Pyongyang revival. In January of that year, spontaneous prayer and confession broke out during regular church meetings and thousands of dominoes fell. Those days of prayer are now considered the birth of an independent, self-sustaining Korean church. When that uh, Korean man died in 1935, 5,000 people attended his funeral. The church in Korea now numbers about 15 million and it sends more foreign missionaries than any other country outside of the U.S., Millions of dominoes continue to fall because of one guy who felt called to, to missions who didn't go because he was too sick and he influenced others to go. You have the Korean church. It's working. It's working around the world. I know it's discouraging in the Western world, but listen to this. Dan Meyer says, and this is about 10 years old, in 1900, Korea had no Protestant church. Today, there are over 7,000 churches in just the city of Seoul. At the end of the 19th century, the southern portion of Africa was 3% Christian. Today, 63% of the population is Christian. Membership in the churches in Africa is increasing by 34,000 people a day. In India, 14 million of the 140 million members of the untouchable caste have become Christians. More people in the Islamic world have come to Christ in the last 25 years than in the entire history of Christian missions. And that's a very dated, uh, very dated statistic for the Muslim world. In Islamic Indonesia, the percentage of Christians is now so high that the Muslim government won't print statistics because it's over 15%. In China, it's estimated there are now more self-avowed disciples of Jesus than members of the Communist Party. Even the most conservative estimates suggest that China will soon have more Christians than any country in the world. Across the planet, followers of Jesus are increasingly are increasing by more than 80,000 a day. 510 new churches form every day. He says the irony is that except for the Middle East where Christianity was born and Europe and America to whose civilization it gave birth, and that probably would include Canada, which is very European, Christianity is expanding everywhere, everywhere in the world. But I get it why we're discouraged. It's tougher here. It is. It's getting tougher in Europe and North America. It's tougher. It's tough. But God is building his church. And all of us need to be a part of that. God, thank you for your goodness to us. Thank you for the story of Jonah. And I pray that you would help us to learn from him and to not be like him, to recognize your great love and compassion for every person on this planet, even the ones that we don't like, even the ones who are hostile to our faith, we recognize that everyone is made in the image of God and has inestimable value because of that. That's why you love all people everywhere. Help us to not be comfortable in, in, in our little holy huddles at times in our lives, but to make sure that we're connecting with people who need you. 
so that someday we'll have the opportunity to guide them towards faith in Jesus. Help us to do that in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening to this sermon. We hope you found it connected you to the God of truth and love who we worship and serve at Bethany Chapel. If you have any questions or want to connect to any of our pastors, please go to our Bethany Chapel app and choose Connect or go online to bethanychapel.com and click Come. Thanks again and God bless you.